0: Tov, we have the privilege of starting the second sefer of Chumash of Torah, sefer Shmos, and Parsha Shmos. As I mentioned last week, in this week's Parsha we transition from a family into the beginning of a people, the beginning of a, the beginning of a nation, and that, by the way, is uh, captured in the opening pasuk: El Shmos bnei Yisrael abayim Yaakov Bo. These are the names of the Jewish people that come to Mitzrayim, Yaakov. And his family, Ishu Beso. This pasuk very much mirrors the pasuk that described the Jewish people's descent down to Egypt. When they came down to Egypt, the Torah says, "Ela Shemos." Somewhere, hold on. When they come down, the Shivim Nafesh in Parshas Vaigash here. Torah says it says in Parish Vajas, Velashmos Bene Sir Abe Mitzraima, Yakov Uvanov, Behore Yaakov Ruven. What's the difference between these two Psukim? Eilash Mos Bene Israel Bay Mitraimah. In Vyigash too, it says Eilishmos BeneSrael Abe Mitzraima. Yakov ishu bas in Vayigash it says Yaakov Vanov, before Yaakov Reuven What's the word that's different? Be-so The house Rabbi Davis, my colleague in Hollywood Mentioned to me yesterday That the Abarbanel is an amazing insight The word that repeats itself over and over again Not only in our Parsha But in the beginning of Sefer Shmos Is Be-so Bias Selabias, Bias Yishu Be-so The notion of Vyaslam Batim We see this word over and over again What's a Bias? Bias is not a house. What's a bias? It's not a wife. Chazal interpret. Ain beisayla ishto. Chazal interpret. But what word am I looking for? A. Who's that good-looking woman in the back? That's my mother. It's okay. Everyone relax. It's my mother. She said oh, home. a home. To good that, I just point out on the say on the uh, recording, that's my mother, she's sitting in the back. A home. A bias is not a house. A house is made of bricks and mortar. A house is made of stone and wood. What's the difference between a house and a home? A home is not the building materials. A home is not the square footage. A home is values, ideals, people, family. Says the Ibarbanel. You know what the difference now is? Only at the end of Sefer bracious Only with our... Say for Shemos, do we have a bias? Why wasn't it a bias until now? Was Avram not the father of a bias? Yitzchak, Yaakov? Why only now? And the answer is their homes were incomplete. They were divided, they were broken. Avram had a Yitzchak, but he had a Yeshmo. Yitzchak had a Yaakov, but he had an Asaph. Yaakov had the brothers and Yosef with their fighting and their enmity, their animosity only now when they're in Mitzrayim only with the success of the transition to an Ephraim and a Menashe now we've gone from a people to Ubeiso. so it's as if Sefer Shmos is introduced that the prerequisite to becoming a nation is first having a home if you can't live like a family if you can't create a home then you could never be a people We have to get along. We have to be sensitive. We have to be kind. We have to be courteous. We have to be hospitable. We have to function as a family and be generous in spirit and with our resources. We have to be a home and only when you're a home can you continue. Only when you're a family can you become a people. Parsha tells us Yosef and all of his brothers, that entire generation, died. The Jewish people propagated and promulgated. They exploded. Unbelievable population growth. Some Torah describes us like we're... Uh, you know, you have to call the... Were, were ants, were, were insects. The, war, the 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 country, the nation, was filled with them, with the Jewish people. And what happens, as we all know, Vayakam Melech Hadash al-Mitzrayim. A new king arises, and Chazal, of course, debate, is it a new king, or was it the same king, but he had forgotten Yosef? We've studied this in the past, but there's an interesting interpretation on the Vayakam Melech hadash. When you say that it was a A new king that rose. What does it mean a new king that rose? So the Svarno says, What do you mean? They forgot Yosef? Who could forget Yosef? We have history books. We have history lessons and history classes. We know the most influential figures. Certainly a Yosef who saved the economy of Egypt. Who saved the world. Could Yosef have been forgotten? What does it mean a new king arose who didn't know Yosef. Everybody knew Yosef. Open the history book, go on Wikipedia, Google Yosef, you'd know Yosef. So says the Sforno, says the Sforno, the descendants of Yosef who had spread in Egypt failed to maintain the relationship. I find this Sforno very, very powerful I've quoted it before because to me, the Sforno is the source in the Torah for APAC or NORPAC or whatever pack you want to belong to. But the idea that Jews need to continue to maintain a relationship with the governing body where they live. Jews need to be a presence. There needs to be a familiarity. There needs to be the ability to be of influence. Says the Sforno, they knew Yosef. But what happened? Yosef became just a figure of history a part of the past. Yosef's descendants did not maintain a presence. They did not make sure that the new paro was mindful that they were the descendants. They were the progeny of that hero who saved their country. And the failure to maintain a relationship and a communication and a presence meant a failure to have influence. And a failure to have influence meant that when a nefarious evil plan was raised, when the desire for a final solution of the Jewish people of Egypt was proposed, there was no mechanism, there was no lobby, there were no people who could be of influence and make a difference. It's a very powerful sforno. So a new king arises and is threatened by the population, explosive population growth and says, you know, again the uh, usual question, a question which continues to haunt us till today, of dual loyalty. Are they really Egyptians? It's a question from last week's Pasha, by the way. Why did Yaakov make... Why did Yaakov make Yosef, Yosef swear to him he was not going to bury him in Egypt? I asked this last Friday night. Every Friday night we pose a question and, and I don't give the answer. So why? There's a lot of answers which are given. But one is, Power would never have let Yosef go bury Yaakov elsewhere. And why not? What would it reflect about Yosef and his brothers, about all of Goshen? What do you mean? Yaakov, who lived here, who was a loyal Egyptian citizen who was part of our culture and our people, who brought blessing to our land, he wants to get buried in Israel? And you want to take him? What does that say about you, Yosef? I always thought you were my viceroy. I thought you had exclusive loyalty and dedication to here in Egypt. You're going to Israel now? That's where you're choosing to bury your father in perpetuity? Eternal rest? One second, Yosef. Maybe you're not the Yosef I thought you were. Maybe there's dual loyalty. Jonathan Pollard and others, this is a question that continues to haunt us. Dual loyalty. Ask Jews who work in the intelligence community in America today, and they will tell you that till today they continue to be haunted by those accusations. Dual loyalty. Where does your loyalty ride lay? So by Yaakov making Yosef swear, Yosef could turn to power and say, Look, it's nothing to do with my loyalty. I am Egypt. My father, made, I, I made a promise. I got to make good on the promise. Yaakov did a chesed to Yosef by making him swear. So do loyalty. And here again in our parsha, they're growing rav menu. They're going to be large. What if they want to overtake us? Do they have loyalty to us or to themselves? Havan is what should we do? Pentecrena and the Hamah, what if they start a war, and so on and so forth. So they begin to torture the Jewish people, and we all know the story. I don't want to take our valuable time reviewing it, but the murder of babies, the relentless oppressive persecution, and slave labor and hard work. To us the Holocaust is vivid in our minds. We still yet have survivors who can describe it. But this was the first Holocaust the Jewish people sustained. It was nothing short of that murder of children and babies, backbreaking work, slave labor, and so on. The Jews were suffering, and they were suffering terribly. There were two midwives, we know, the Mialdosa Ivrios, Shifra and Pua, otherwise known as Yecheveden, Miriam, And they were, nevertheless, they were recruited to help implement Paro's plan, but they, nevertheless, had a plan of their own in order to continue to uh, support the birth of of Jewish children. And they are rewarded. It was heroism. They were righteous. They took incredible personal risk towards the continuity of the Jewish people. And they did so not only physically serving as midwives, but they did so, we know, as significantly, Miriam in particular giving her father reason, optimism to believe it was yet worthy to bring children into the world. It was the mirrors of the women of Egypt. They used to beautify themselves and to attract and seduce their husbands. That was the base of the kior. It became a vessel in the holiest place in the Besamekdash. Because we know that these women in Looking around Egypt, slave labor, murder, infanticide, they should have given up hope. Who could bring a child into such a world? Who would possibly give birth into such a world? But it was the wisdom and the foresight, the optimism, the faith of women in particular, who said to their husbands, don't withdraw from me. Don't give up on the world. We have a promise, it's yet going to turn. It will yet get better. And that's what was memorialized in the Kiyor, in the basin, when the Kahnim would look down as they were washing, getting ready to do the avoda, and they saw those mirrors. They were reminded of the faith and the optimism of those of those very women. And uh, that is one of the hallmark character traits of Jewish women, of the Jewish people. We should have given up in theory long ago. We should have... Few children, we should never want to expose anyone to the kind of persecution, the terrorism in Israel, and all the problems, all of the problems that we have. I remember my mother telling me a long time ago that one of the greatest population growths in Jewish history was in the DP camps following the Holocaust. It should have been a population that said, you know what, maybe one child each will keep these people going, but really, do we need to bring more people into the world? who may yet suffer the way we have, that's never been the Jewish way. You look in Israel, victims of terror have big families and so on. People living in fear aren't saying, let's uh, let's end this experiment, but rather they keep going and that was the credit of Miriam. So Yocheved, Miriam, Shifra, Pua, it's not just that they enabled and empowered the birth of children serving as midwives physically, but through the faith and the optimism as well. As you all know, Moshe is born... Paro has an inkling through his astrologers that the savior of the Jewish people may be here he increases the workload and increases the decrees against them we all know the story that that, uh, they're fearful of Moshe's life so they put him in the basket floating in the river he is discovered by Paro's daughter what's her name? no I don't know why it has entered the Jewish tradition that her name is Basia her name is Bisia Zachirik not a patach under her name I don't know why we all call her Bassia and if your name is Bassia for now on your Bisia I don't know what the uh, I don't I don't know why but her name her name was Bisia the daughter of the daughter of Paro. I mean, it's a remarkable story. Right? If, if this were a movie, nobody would go to it because it's so unbelievable. The main character, the villain, it's his own daughter who discovers the savior that the villain is trying to avoid and brings that future savior into the palace of the villain right under his nose to be raised with royalty, to be raised with confidence. We've shared in the past the great Ibn Ezra who says, why is Moshe privileged? Right, There's a popular term today, privileged, you're privileged, you can't relate. Why is Moshe among the privileged? Shouldn't the person who's going to save the oppressed people feel their pain? So the Ibn Ezra says, you know, if you wanted Moshe to be able to walk into a palace, and to be able to stare Paro down, and to be able to confidently tell him, let my people go, he needed to know what it was like to feel like royalty and dignified. He needed to have self-confidence and self-worth. He couldn't lack self-esteem. He couldn't have a slave mentality. A slave mentality could never gain the confidence it would take to demand, let my people go. So the Ibn Ezra says, if you wanted Moshe to act like royalty, he had to be raised as royalty. And he became the model that a slave nation looked at and said, we are the children of God. We're royalty. We're princes and princesses, like Moshe who grew up in the palace. But had he not experienced it and known it firsthand, he never could have modeled it. He never could have been that demanding. Yes? Could Bastion be the daughter of God as she converted? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. No, but her name, her name is clearly, the pronunciation of her name is, is Bisya. And we know she reaches out her hand and her hand extends itself miraculously beyond her reach. <laughs> Just take my word for it for today. <laughs> or don't... <laughs> Don't. I know. I've just radically changed your whole upbringing and childhood. And take my word for it, or don't. It's fine. Call it, We'll will agree that we're talking about. We'll agree we're talking about the same person. Moshe identifies with his people. He sees a Egyptian hitting a Jew. Va'if Kovaho, Vayar He turns both ways. He sees there's no person. We've shared previously. homiletically clearly, it's not the pshat but we've shared homiletically. What does it mean, he turned this way and that way and he saw there was no man? It means he looked at the Egyptian inside himself and he looked at the Jew inside himself and he realized, if I'm both, then I'm neither. What am I in my core? What drives me? What's my identity? He looked both ways, When he saw that he was trying to be both an Egyptian and a Jew and they had conflicting values, if the values complement one another, that's great. It's easy to be an American Jew or a Jewish American when everything works nicely. But what happens when there's a values conflict? What comes first? Who are we in what we believe in our values, in our ideals, in our morals, in our ethic? So that's when, if you're trying to be both, you're nothing. And what does Moshe do? Homiletically, Moshe strikes the Egyptian in him. Moshe secures who he is, his identity, a tremendous display of leadership. Again, that's not the literal pshat, but that is a homiletic interpretation. Moshe is forced to run away, comes to the daughters of Midian, as is the Jewish way. He meets her at a well. We've also discussed this in the past. You can listen online. Why is the Jewish way to meet at a well? Is the well the bar, the club of antiquity? That's where the Jewish singles events took place. The Jewish dance was at the well. That's where you met. Obviously not. What is the symbolism or the significance of the well? As I say, we've discussed it previously. Moshe marries and the time for salvation has arrived. We have the episode of the burning bush, which is what we're going to study in depth momentarily. Moshe doubts. Ribbonah Shalom reassures him. He asks God for his name. God gives him a name. And now Moshe is ready to set out on his mission. But Moshe doubts. Moshe doesn't think the people are going to believe him. He doesn't think that they're going to have the strength to embrace a message of hope and of freedom. And uh, so Moshe, please, God responds. And Moshe sets out towards Egypt. Siporah performs a bris on her son which is unusual the Talmud is uh, is critical of Moshe that Moshe didn't do it Sipora had to do it what is the background of that for another time Moshe and Aaron come to Paro Paro refuses he increases the workload the Jews are suffering they complain to Moshe and Aaron where's your message what happened it's getting worse since he got here it's not getting better so we don't believe you and that is where our cliffhanger Parsha leaves us I want to study with you Revi'i, or Paragymel Pasigal, of chapter 3, verse number 1, in the article, Stone Chumash, it appears on page 300, 300, Okay. So, so what's going on? says the Torah, And Moshe HaYerohes, son Chosno Kohen Midyan, And HaGes Achar, Ha-midbar, el-har ha-elokim, Moshe is a shepherd, has a livelihood, he wasn't a doctor, he wasn't a lawyer, he was a shepherd, he was a shepherd, and he's watching the sheep, his flock, the, f- the flock of his father-in-law Yisro, who we are reminded is a priest of Midian, achar ha-midbar, and he leads, he guides the sheep into the wilderness, and oh, he finds himself where? Hara Elohim Chareva. Where is Hara Elohim Choreva? Where is the place? What is this mountain he happens to find himself on? Anyone know? It is none other than? Harsinai. The place that will become Harsinai, where the Torah will be given. Look at Rashi. Bar lehisrachek min Now why is he far away? Why does Moshe find himself at a distance? The shepherds all congregate in a certain area this great pasture, this great la field. Moshe's at a distance. Why is Moshe at a distance? Says Rashi, quoting, Gazal, min Because everyone else, you know, normally you would not allow your shepherd, shepherds did not make good aidim at a wedding. If you're the Masada Kedushin, the Chassan said, I'd like the shepherd to be the aid Kedushin, you say, maybe it's possible we have someone else. Why would a shepherd not make a good aid? Because shepherds, Chazal tell us, were Naqshah, they were always, we were suspicious about Gezel. Why are shepherds? Do we have a bias against this profession? Why are shepherds? Why are we suspicious or worried that they are thieves? Not necessarily intentionally with malice, but you're a shepherd. You're leaning back, reading your book, you're studying the dafyomi. You're listening to a song on your phone and your sheep are grazing and inevitably and invariably sheep don't have mindfulness and a conscience. Sheep graze wherever the grass looks best and where might they easily find themselves? They nibble on the lawn of the neighbor. They nibble on the next field. They're nibbling a little bit from here. This branch is sticking out into the road. They're nibbling off of that. So many shepherds were considered to be in the category of gazlanim. We were fearful that they were not as scrupulous or vigilant as they should have been. The exception, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe takes his flock, those whom he's responsible to shepherd, at a distance, He's away because he has integrity. The first character trait we see here of Moshe is he has integrity. He has honesty. To the point that he's doing something which is an aberration. Unlike the other shepherds, he is at a distance in order to make sure that he's not doing anything which is inappropriate. Um What did I see says this also? Look at the Kliyakar. Says the Kliyakar, Omro Mepharshim, Yvishikor, Ruh, Apostle, Al-Shemarim, Ba-Hemoz, Besodat, Zahkirim, Vashudim, and Sanat, Jorun, Shepherds were generally suspicious of. Al-Kain, Amar, Elu, Ayusha, Ve'in Adam, Chote, V'lo now, they're not his animals. So who would have sinned? Yisro. They're Yisro's sheep, not Moshe's. Now, is it a coincidence? Not only do our greatest leaders meet their wives at the well, but our greatest leaders also were in the profession of shepherds. Why? Is that random? Is it a coincidence? Says the Kliyakar, no. Shepherding is a profession which promotes Reflection, introspection, meditation, self-discovery, prayer, spirituality. Ki <inaudible> is Says the Kliyakar, the prerequisite or the necessary precondition to experience prophecy is hisbodidas. What's His Hisbodidas is solitude. solitude. It is the ability to meditate. It is the ability to be alone. Not loneliness with a negative connotation, but the capacity to be alone, to be reflective. You can't be reflective when there's noise, right? When your device, the text and the Facebook and the messenger and the email and the call, and the, there's no room for being reflective when there's noise. The prerequisite to being reflective is having space. And that's what these shepherds are able to do. They're walking, they're wandering. They're outside of cell phone range. Nobody can get them. The shepherd has solitude. They're alone. The sheep don't talk to them. They're able to be reflective and therefore to experience nevuah. If you're sitting in your house with its distractions... Or you're working in the field. Or you're in the big city. The shepherd who has time. The image of the shepherd is he's lying under the tree with a branch in his mouth and and he's reading a book or he's uh, sitting back taking a nap. The sheep are grazing. The shepherd has the space to think, to dream, to be spiritual. And that's why our greatest leaders were shepherds. So Moshe is in that that, uh, category. This is Moshe's Incubator period. He is developing as a leader before he's ready to go down to Egypt and to serve that purpose. Rabbi Soloveitchik says similarly, the Rav writes uh, in the Rav Chumash, Um, the phrase in the beginning, Moshe Ro'eh, is in grammatical form known as a participle. Oh, we'll skip the grammar part because you're not going to get excited about that. In contrast, the next phrase does not does seem to be in the past tense. The Torah seems to be describing an incident. At this point in the narrative, Moshe led his sheep to the desert. But Rashi indicates this phrase should not be interpreted this way. It should be a continuation of the participle construction. A she, as a shepherd, Moshe regularly led his sheep to the desert rather than stay in Midian, so sheep would not graze in others' fields. In the desert, there are no property rights and anyone's animals are allowed to graze. Uh, What is the purpose of this lonely journey? What did Moshe do with this mountain? He prayed for his people, for his brothers, whom he left when he fled Egypt. Moshe had lost faith in his brothers. They were not worthy of freedom. Moshe likely prayed that his brothers should rise spiritually and psychologically, develop a sense of dignity, no longer to be informers who spy on their own brethren. Yet as it was a time of Hester Panim, Moshe received no answer until now. So, says the Rav, posits the Rav, what's Moshe thinking about lying under that tree, walking with the flock? He's wondering, what happened with my people in Egypt? Remember, he's separated. There are no news alerts coming in. He doesn't have access to information. He knows that he ran away because Jews were ready to inform on Jews he suffered. And so he had to run. So he wonders, what became of the slave nation? What became of his family? What became of his people? And only now is God ready to give him both the answer the answer. And is God ready to give him with the answer the assignment? What happens? He goes to Chareva, which the Ibn Ezra says, Kachakas of Moshe, why is this place that he takes them? Chareva ha-chom Geshem from the amazing amount of heat, because no rain fell there. The Sinai Desert, think about the desert. Okay. Sinai, the Sinai, the Sinai Desert is oppressively hot. There's no rain. There's no breeze. The Nile's far away. There's no irrigation. There's no moisture in the air. The dryness. So it's called Choreva Milashon. It's dry air. It's, It's oppressively hot. In fact, there's one of the interpretations of the Medrash. We all know the. Medrash that kafalayim harki gig is God held the mountain over the Jewish people's head when he gave us the Torah. And we normally interpret that negatively to say God coerced us, he forced us. That's the Gemara which says, Kim of the kiblu, kvar. Only in the time of Purim did we accept what we previously were coerced to accept. God held the mountain over our head and he threatened us. Doesn't mean literally, doesn't mean metaphorically, through revelation. That's a separate topic. But there's an amazing medrash which says no. When God held the mountain over him, Kafaleim Har Kigigis, references a Pussek in Shirashirim, it doesn't mean God, in a threatening way, held the mountain. It meant it was hot as anything. The people needed some shade. He held the mountain lovingly, affectionately, with warmth. He wanted to provide some shade, some relief. So this Ibn Ezra supports that, that interpretation of the Medrash. That Kafale Markigis is not in a threatening manner, but a loving, affectionate manner, because the Ibn Ezra says that's why it's called Choreva, because of the dryness and the oppressive heat. Says the Aswarna also, Vayavo Elhara elokim Choreva. He arrives at Harsinai. The Aswarna also, like the Kleyaker says, why'd he go there? He's all alone. He goes to, to a place where the rest of the shepherds don't go. Shepherds congregate. Make Lachaim, drink beer, hang out over there. Why does Moshe go to Hara Lokim Choreva? He goes in order Dafka to have solitude. You know, you can't have a breakthrough if there's noise. We are I, I talk about this it's easier to talk about it. Practicing it I'm struggling with, but I talk about it a lot. We are a generation that have forgotten how to have Hispodidos. We don't have that experience of quiet. We're always attached to something. We're always connected. There's constantly noise. We can't be alone in the car, in the elevator, on the walk, in the exercise. We're, oh, there's noise, 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 noise. And without his potidus, you can't think, you can't reflect, you can't introspect. You can't have moments of breakthrough. Spiritual breakthrough happens in moments of being alone. We spoke a few weeks ago that Yaakov was levado. Yaakov was levado and therefore vulnerable when he wrestled with the angel. But another way of understanding it, an alternative interpretation is, what allowed Yaakov to have that breakthrough? He triumphs over his evil inclination. Yaakov has a breakthrough that he is the victor over the saroshal Yes, he walks away limping, but he walks away. He is victorious. And what allowed him to do that? What put him in a position to be wrestling with himself? To wrestle with who he is and who he wants to be. It's Vaivasa Yaakov lived It was Davka, the fact that he had his this. He was alone. He could think. He could reflect. What day on the Jewish calendar was that? Anyone know? We experience it every year on Kol Nidre night. Kol Nidre night is when Yaakov was alone wrestling with the angel. I once spoke on Yom Kippur and I said Kol Nidre night. That's what Yom Kippur is. Some people take a vow. They don't speak over Yom Kippur. A tiny's dibur. Because the idea of Yom Kippur is, you are immersed in Hispodidas. It's in the context of prayer, but there's no meals. You're not sitting around schmoozing, talking. There's no meal. You are angelic. You are transcending the physical trappings of the world. No leather shoes. We wear white. We are angelic. And we spend 25 hours alone, thinking, reflecting, considering, having remorse and regret and having commitment about who we want to be. That's what the necessary precondition to have breakthrough. So when is Moshe about to break through? When does he go from being a toddler and an adolescent to being a young man to going to Midian and getting married? When does he become the leader? What allows him to have this interaction at the snare? The precursor, the prerequisite to it is first he has his this. We can't have an expectation of breakthrough Of spiritual breakthrough, if we're not capable, if we've lost the capacity to be to be alone. So both the Kliyakra and the Sforna point out that why is Moshe at this mountain? What is he doing? He is experiencing his Okay, not bad. We did one Pasuk so far. Let's keep going. (laughs) Pasuk (laughs) days. Beautiful, nice chorus. He sees an angel, an angel of Hashem appears to Moshe from inside the fire that is in the bush and he sees the bush is burning but it's not being consumed. It's on fire but it's not diminished. It's not in any way being destroyed. So Moshe says, gadola there." The bush is burning. Moshe says, Let me turn. Let me see what's going on over here. He's captured. He's curious. He's, his attention has been drawn. Some suggest, by the way, that that's the greatness of Moshe. That the bush was burning and not being consumed. And everybody else, they were walking by, looking on their phone. They didn't notice. They didn't know, they're not aware. Anything going on around them. I saw two days ago, a man walked off a cliff because he was looking at his phone and died. So, people all over Midian, all over near Choreva, near Harsina, near Chorev, people all over are walking by this snare that's on fire but not being consumed. But they're looking at the phone and no one notices it. One of the great character traits of Moshe, we already talked about his honesty, his integrity, his capacity to be alone, to be reflective. But Moshe's core hallmark is... He has an awareness of what's going on around him. He notices a man is hitting another man. He doesn't close his eyes, he tries to intercede. He notices, one second, there's something unusual going on here. There's a bush, it's burning, it's not being consumed. One second. By the way, he shares this quality with his father in law. Yisro, Parsh's Yisro, we'll be up to it in a few weeks. It begins by Yishma Yisro. Yisro heard, and therefore he came. No one else heard. Nobody else read the newspaper the day after. There's a big machlokis. Was it the war with Amalek? Or Kriyas Yamsuf? Or the giving of the Torah? What is it? Mashmu Shama Uba. What did Yisro hear that made him come? It's a machlokas Tanayim. But whatever it is he heard, everyone heard it. If you got the newspaper, you turn on the news, you heard. Wow, splitting of a sea. Wow. God Himself spoke on a mountain. Wow. The defeat of Amalek. Everyone heard. But they didn't really hear it. They read the newspaper while they sipped their coffee and ate the cereal, they turned the oh, interesting and they turned the page. Didn't penetrate. They didn't really hear. Yishma has a capacity to really hear in a penetrating way, hear in a way that moves him to action. And Moshe shares that in common with his father-in-law. Maybe many people walked by this now. Nobody noticed. But you see how the pasik goes out of its way to describe. Asurana. Asura means let me turn. Let me interrupt my normal course. Let me leave my comfort zone. Let me stop what I'm doing there and investigate and look and see with curiosity and inquisitiveness, with an awareness of what's going on. Madhulivar, why isn't it burning? Vayar Hashem. So Hashem also sees something. What does he see in Moshe? Kisar Liros. What does that mean? God sees that Moshe turned to see. What impresses God about Moshe? This is an unbelievable insight. What impresses God about Moshe? So, on the surface it looks like, God sees that Moshe bothered to look. Everybody else walked by, but he bothered to look. But is this referring to the sneh? So my brother told me this morning an amazing medrash. This is a family affair here. My brother told me an amazing medrash this morning. The medrash rabbi says, Kisar liros, it wasn't that God was impressed that Moshe turned now to go follow this, this uh, scientific anomaly of a burning bush that's not consumed. You know what impressed God? That Moshe had seen the pain of his brothers. That Moshe had this awareness, this sensitivity, this discomfort. Someone else is suffering. Moshe is suffering. Moshe is with the people. Moshe feels the pain of a friend. That's the Kisar Liros. What makes Moshe great? Not because he's the Av Hanavim. Not because he's the smartest one in the room. And not because he's the most spiritual one in the room. And not because he is the most has the greatest prophecy in the room. What makes Moshe the chosen leader and the greatest leader of all of our history and all of our destiny what makes Moshe the greatest is kisar liros, liros He sees the pain of others and he feels the pain of others and he seeks to relieve and alleviate the pain of others. By 11, God calls him the snap and he calls him Moshe, Moshe. By Yomer, Hineni. has God of a stutter? What's with the Moshe, Moshe? Why does God say Moshe, Moshe? We saw last week that God called, the Torah calls him Yaakov, Yaakov. We have with Avram, Avram, Avram. We haven't say for Shmuel, Shmuel, Shmuel. However, there's a difference between when we have Avram, Avram, Yaakov, Yaakov, Shmuel, Shmuel, and Moshe, Moshe. What's the difference? Anyone know? There's a line in between. There's a line in all the other cases. There's a line here. Moshe, Moshe. There is no line. Why? Said Rabbi Salavitchik. This phenomenon is seen elsewhere in the Torah. God summons Avram, Avram, Yaakov, Yaakov, Shmuel, Shmuel. Um, But there is a difference between Moshe, Moshe, and the other repetitions. In all the other instances, says the Rav, there is a psik, a line, indicating a pause between the names. Avram, psik, Avram, Yaakov, psik, Yaakov. In the case of Moshe, there is no pause. When God addresses Himself to Avram, He called to Avram, and He paused. And when Avram did not answer, He said Avram a second time. God waited perhaps a fraction of a second. The same is true of Yaakov. But when he called out to Moshe, there was no pause. He said, Moshe, Moshe in one breath, as it were. Moshe, Moshe is an expression of urgency. In the case of Moshe, God was, so to speak, desperate. He tells Moshe, if he accepts the mission, if he accepts the task of the Redeemer, everything will be alright. If not, everything will be, everything will be wasted. So that's the Rav's interpretation. Others suggest that Moshe is the only one to fully realize his potential. Yes, Avram is great, Yaakov is great, Shmuel is great, but there's that line. There's the Avram of the reality and the Avram of potential. The only one that there's no line between, because he fully realized his potential, his mission in life, is, is Moshe. But let's keep going. <laughs> says God don't come close stop take your shoes off because the place you're standing this is very holy ground I am the God of your fathers ok why does he have to spell it out afterwards if he said fathers we know why not write Why which is parallels the question of every day when we say the Amidah could save ourselves a fraction of a second. Elokin elokay avot saynu elokay Avram Yitzchak vYaakov. Why do we say elokay Avram, elokay Yitzchak elokay Yaakov? Vayaster Moshe Panav ki Arami Abitel elokin. Moshe was afraid, anxious. He turned. He didn't want to look at God. Vayomer Hashem ra'oh ra'isi. Says God, I see a sani a mei Hashem I see the suffering of my people, sam Shamati, and I've heard their cries. I understand, I know, I am familiar with their pain. don't worry. I'm coming down. Where was he that he had to come down? He was in the attic, I'm going to take them out of that God-forsaken, literally land, and I'm bringing them to the good and wide land flowing with milk and honey, and And God tells Moshe, don't worry, I heard, I know, I'm familiar, I'm coming. Let's stop here, let's pause here, because the next section is now, Moshe tell- God tells him, and I got good news for you, you're going to be my messenger. Right? If we were to stop there, God's just informing him of his plan. But now the continuation is, God says to Moshe, and you're my man. You're going to be the shliach. And does Moshe react, uh-uh. I'm, I don't, I'm not an orator I don't speak well I'm a shepherd I'm good all alone that's where I thrive I'm not a leader not me find someone else and God responds to those concerns and there's a lot to talk about there but come back here for a moment what's going on over here? so Moshe turns and looks he's curious God is impressed that Moshe bothered to see but before anything new more happens he says stop don't come close Take your shoes off. Now why isn't he allowed to come close? So the Ramban says, look at the Ramban, <laughs> Moshe's not yet peaked. He's not yet become the prophet he's destined to be. So with Harsinai, we don't have this warning. With Harsinai, Moshe is welcome and invited to the top of the mountain. But he's not there yet. Moshe is not ready to go there yet, because he's not peaked in his Navua. Continues the Ramban, this place that you're standing is holy. Even though he was already at a distance from the Sneh, he's warned, says the Ramban. Kol Allah, har and so on. It's a continuation of the theme that Moshe is not yet ready to go. So the two things I want to talk about in our remaining time are, what is the imagery of the Sneh? Why does God choose to present Himself through this imagery of a bush that's burning but not consumed? And number two, why does Moshe have to take his shoes off? What's the deal with the shoes off? So let's take a look. First at the snare. What's the imagery of this bush which is burning? So, if you look at the Spharno, The Seferno has the following interpretation. Well, let me tell you first Rashi. Rashi says, What's a sneh? It's a bush, a thicket, not a tree. Rashi says, Why does God appear? Why is this image, why is this recruitment mission done through the image of a a sneh, not a tree? So Rashi says, The image is God appears through the guise of an angel in the bush. And God is saying, I am in this bush Uncomfortable, thorny, lowly bush, because I'm with you. Imo anochi bitsara. God does not send us suffering and hardship and struggle, and He remains lofty. He's in resort. He's relaxing in heaven. But imo anochi btsara. We have a tradition that God comes with us. This is a tradition through the Khurbans and a tradition of tishabav and it's a tradition that uh, that is imitated that when a person has to go to Golas, if they kill accidentally, then their Rebbe goes with them, based on this, God comes with us, and for Rashi, that's the imagery of the Sneh, that God appears in this bush that's not being consumed, because God is suggesting to Moshe, that don't think that you and I are here in Mid- Midian enjoying, and they're suffering, I'm also suffering. If my children or my people are struggling and suffering, then so too am I. But says the Swarano something a little different. <clears throat> it's lit. The angel appeared to Moshe as if in the middle of the bush, and the fire is around, surrounding the angel. Lahoros, what's the imagery? The snare the thorny, thicket, uncomfortable, painful, miserable, lowly bush, that's Egypt. The Malach, or the Tzadikim, or the righteous. <speaking in Hebrew> so just like this bush, which represents Egypt, is suffering, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed, it's not disappearing, so too God will visit plagues on the lowly Egyptians, but they're not going to give up. They're going to endure nonetheless. They're going to be stubborn and abstinent. So the angel represents the righteous Jews. They're inside the snare. the snare represents the Egyptians. It's on fire, represents the Makos, but it doesn't consume them, represents the fact that they will not give up. Ki lo haise nevuaz Moshe Rabbeinu alav HaSholam az k'mosh haise achar kach k'mosh haid baomro ki yareh miyabit alol kim al hepech utmunas Hashem yabit ava miyom antor ve'elach shnigla az d'chol yisro aponem eponem ve'hem lo yisbuzeh kamem lo osif and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's what Sforno. So Rashi says, what's the interpretation for Rashi is? Imo an ochi For the Sforno, the bush is Egypt, the Malach are the righteous Jews, the fire are the Mak it's not consumed because the Egyptians are not going to are not going to give up. The Urachaim. Trying to decide who to do next. There's so many interpretations here. I'll tell you what the Rav says. Rabbi Salavichik says the following. What is this imagery? Says, uh, says the Rav. Rashi interprets the phrase balabas eish as balev eish. The bush was, bush was shaped like a circle with a fire in the center, and the fire did not spread to the periphery. The word lev is used here in the same sense as the phrase lev hashamayim. shamayim Lev means the center, the heart is at the center. So when Moshe asks, he was not asking, why is the bush not consumed?, But why does the fire not spread to the periphery? The fire was confined to one dimensionless point in the center. And Moshe says, What kind of fire is this? What kind of fire is limited to one point and a fire doesn't spread? Said the Rav the following, The bush symbolizes the morality of Judaism. Many times the Rebona Shalom approaches man from infinity. From this transcendence, God communicates with man, addresses himself to man. But God can also descend from infinity. ...from a transcendent world and contract himself. This is known as Midas atzimtzum, And this is the lesson he wanted Moshe to teach B'nai Yisrael... ...which is why he revealed himself as a dimensionless point. Cosmic man finds God, if ready for him... ...in the vastness and boundlessness of the cosmic drama... ...in the heavenly galaxies billions of light years away. Homebound, origin-minded man... Finds God in the limitedness and narrowness of finitude, in the smallness of the modest home into which man was born, and to which he willy nilly returns. He discovers God in the origin, in the source, in the centre of the burning bush. Either infinity cannot contain God, or God, if he so wills it, addresses man from the dimensionless of point of a point. For what is the centre of a bush if not a point? And out of that point God spoke to Moshe. Moshe had lost faith in his brothers in the aftermath of the fight between Dasan and Aviram. Through the appearance of the burning bush, whose fire in the center did not spread, God imparted the message that while the Jews in Egyptian slavery externally appeared cold, in their hearts they had a fire. Though these Hebrews were nitzim, they were fighting, deep inside there were nitzots, they were a spark. So the Rav says that's why the language is Belabas esh, believe. These Jewish people, don't judge them on the external. Inside them, there is a burning fire. There is a spark that's waiting to be fanned, to turn it into a flame, and to, be able to, and to be able to grow from there. I once saw interpretation, I don't remember where, that he's recruiting Moshe. You'll understand in a moment why this resonates with me. He's recruiting Moshe to be a leader of the Jewish people, and he gives them the image of fire. You have to have passion. You have to be on fire. But enenu ukal, you can never burn out. You can't burn out. Don't be consumed. Don't run out of gas. Keep that fire going. You can never run out. You can never, you can never burn. So, this, so those are some of the images of why the snare is it the malach is in the middle, or the tzaddikim, the Egyptians. We saw Rashi, we saw the Sforno, and we saw Rabbi Salavechik. But come back to the question of the shoes. Why does God tell Moshe, take your shoes off. You can't come close. Without taking your shoes off. And the Orochayim has all discussion here. The Orochayim says, God is in fact telling Moshe two things. Number one, don't come close. And number two, take off your shoes. What order would you have told him? Take off off your shoes. Stop! Don't take take your shoes off. And don't come too close. But yet, here, the Torah tells him, God tells him, don't come close and take off your shoes. And the bothered. One is, take off your shoes, and the other is, don't come close. Why not tell him to remove the impediment, namely, he's already violating it by wearing his shoes. Why don't you tell him first, take off his shoes, and only then say, don't come close? And the Orchayim has a whole where he says one is an assay, and one is a Los Asay. One is active, take off your shoes, the other is passive, don't come close. And you see from here, says the Orchayim, what the order of things should be. And that's why it always says, You always see first the Los Asay. first is the what you shouldn't do, and then is the assay, then is what you do. So don't come close, then take your shoes off. And the Orchayim extrapolates from here a model for how we are to approach Judaism. Do you first work on the what not to do or the do? Do you first work on the active or the passive? And the los, say, or the, or the, I say, I'll digress just for, for one moment if you'll indulge me. Selonah Marebi in last week's Pasha says that's exactly what the debate was between Yaakov and Yosef. Yosef brings his sons in Menasha and Ephraim for a brachah to Yaakov and yeah, and he places Menasheh, the older one, on the right and Yosef, the, uh, Ephraim, the younger one, on the left <laughs> and what does Yaakov do? Pulls the old switcheroo and he crowns, coronates Ephraim as if he is the older son and Yosef corrects him he says, dad, what are you doing? you got it wrong Yaakov says, yadati b'ni yadati trust me, my son, I know what I'm doing so what's the debate? what are they arguing about? so the Son of Marebbe quotes from the B'Shoshaph and says, that Menashe represents losase, kinashani says God caused me to forget. Ephraim represents the positive, the asay, ki beretzani. God caused me to to promote, to spread, to, to increase. So Menashe represents me the sayira. Ephraim represents me the saava. So this was the debate. What comes first, Surmeira or aseitov you want to get healthy. You first start exercising or you first stop eating the chocolate cake? What comes first? Asei Obviously, you need both. In whatever area of life, obviously, we need a combination of the two. But what comes first? Sur or Asei Tov? Menashe is Midasa Yirah. Menashe is Sur Manasha Menashe is Los Ephraim is Asei Tov. a Ava. So, what happens? So, rabbis is This beautiful interpretation. He comes and he says, Eila, who are these?" Eila says, "The Osios Elokid, Midas What Yaakov was saying to Yosef was, who, "I don't recognize these kids. What's with the Midas Ayira? What's with all the fear? What's with all the neg- What's with all the religion of no? What's going on around here? I don't recognize them. This is not what I recognize." So Yosef answers, "Banayim, these are my children. They were born by Z. They were born here in Egypt. What does that have to do with anything? They were born here in Egypt." Says the son of a Rebbe, Yosef answering his father Yaakov, you're right. In Canaan, you have the luxury, you can meet the Sa'ava, everything's about love and Judaism and good and tov. But we're down here, we're in Egypt. We are saturated in the epicenter, the ground zero of the moral depravity. We need a little Midas a year to survive around here. So Yaakov looks at him and he says, no, all the more so in Mitzrayim. Menashe and Ephraim, he switches his hands and he puts Ephraim first and he says, you need a little more Midas If you want to survive in Mitzrayim, you need a religion that's a little less about no and a little more about yes. A little less about what you can't do and a little more about the beauty of what you get to do. And that's the debate between Menashe, between Yaakov and Yosef is, what comes first? Surmeyrah or Asay Tov? Asay or Los Hasey? or Yira? And Dafke In a place like Mitzrayim, when you're in a foreign land, you need the boundary setting? Is it the religion of no? Or do you need the love? And do you need the atmosphere of yes and the privilege and the right? Is it, is it, or is it to be a where's the Where is the emphasis? That is the debate between Yaakov and Yosef with Menashe and Ephraim. So says the Orchaim, he's weighing in here, not like the way the Slalom Rebbe said, Yaakov, he's weighing like Yosef, that, vasisem. First comes the Midas Ayira, first comes the Sur and then the Asetov, and that's why God says to him, first, don't come close, Sur now Asetov, take your shoes off. Okay, so very quickly, why take your shoes off? What's the deal with taking the shoes off? Why take your shoes off? So, I'll share with you a few quick interpretations. Rav Hirsch, Rav Shem Shonafal says, that Moshe we know, is unbelievably lofty and spiritual. He lives, he transcends this earth. He has no connection to the physical, no desire, no pleasure. In fact, the Maharal explains that's the source of Moshe's speech impediment. What is speech? It's the bridge of the physical and the spiritual. We take the world of ideas and thoughts and emotions and they find expression in this physical world through the medium of speech. Moshe was so spiritual, so disconnected from this world, he had an impediment. That pipeline, that channel for him was broken. It didn't work smoothly. So Moshe's in the spiritual. Says Rav Hirsch, God's message to Moshe was, if you're going to be my leader, I need you to feel the ground. I need you to be rooted here on earth. Your head's up in Shemaim. And I love that about you, Moshe. But if you're going to be a leader of a people, If you're going to relate to that people, if you're going to take them out of Egypt, take your shoes off and feel the ground, feel the earth beneath your feet, because that is the world you will live in, and that is the environment you're going to be living. A second interpretation of why he takes his shoes off is, shoes enable and empower us to have independence. You ever tried taking the garbage out, you were lazy to put your shoes on, so you made it to the edge of your driveway without your shoes? How much further could you have gotten? You can't get very far with no shoes on. There's pebbles, there's glass shards, there's cracks, there's uneven surfaces. It hurts. Shoes protect our feet. And they give us independence. And they provide, they enable the capacity to endure the elements of the world and to be able to function in the world. They give us a certain sense of independence. In fact, it's a bracha we say every morning. What bracha do we say in the birchas HaShachar? HaMeichin... Mitzadeh Gaver Which means, when Chazal, the Gemara Bracha, when were you supposed to say that Bracha? Today we rattle off all 15 Birchas of Shachar at once. But when they were originally ordained, they were to be said one by one. And you got dressed, you said, Ma And when you did this, you said that. You heard the, you heard the rooster crow, you said, I know it's on the sechli. So when was it you said this Bracha, When you put on your shoes. Why? What you're saying is, God, you prepare the footsteps of man. You give me independence. You enable me to leave my house, to go to work, to go to the shir, to go to the gym. You gave me a life through wearing shoes. Shoes give us mobility, they give us functionality, they give us independence, they allow us to engage the world. When we are before God, when we are before God, we are supposed to submit and we are supposed to concede that independence. By the way, this halacha wasn't unique to Moshe. The Kohanim and Arabais couldn't wear shoes. We on Yom Kippur don't wear shoes. When you are in a holy place or in a holy time, you take off your shoes. Why? According to the second interpretation, because if you're going to be before God, then you're not going anywhere else. You lose the mobility. You lose the functionality. You lose the independence. And we make a statement, God, I am exclusively... Focused. I'm dedicated to be right here, right now, before you. If I'm going to experience holiness, then it means I need to feel mil vado All I have is you. I'm not going, and I don't have anything else. A third interpretation. A third interpretation is that we wear shoes in order to protect ourselves from pain, to guard ourselves from hurt. Maybe Hashem was telling Moshe, if you want to be an effective leader, take off the ins- insulation. Take off the protection. You have to be willing to feel pain and to absorb hurt and to experience a sting and an ache and an irritation. Being a leader, I've heard, can be painful. It can be lonely. You can endure hurtful things and you can endure pain. And if you, Moshe, are going to be the leader, take your shoes off. Because if you can't walk, if you're not able to endure and to absorb a little bit of pain, a little bit of hurt, you're not going to be able to be an effective leader next reason next reason I'll give you one more reason two more reasons and then I'll let you all go Rabbi Moskowitz is not here today so he's not giving a share so I'm allowed to encroach into his time Ra- uh, one more from the Rav okay forget from the Rav I'll give you one more explanation one more explanation this is my favorite one probably because it's mine this is my favorite interpretation Right? So I said, the Gemara in Yevomos, the Gemara in Brachos, Kohen can't wear shoes, on Harabayas, Yom Kippur, and so on. What's the connection between Kedusha, between holiness, and not wearing shoes? We we suggested three interpretations so far. There's a great book. I don't know what motivated me to read it because I'm not a runner. But there's a great book by Christopher McDougall. It's a best-selling book. It's called Born to Run. I actually read this whole book, not just the reviews of it, but the summary of it. And in this book, he tells an amazing story of the Taramura tribe from Mexico. it's a tra- He's a journalist and he's a jogger, he's a runner, he ran in marathons. And he had always heard about this tribe and the book is about his journey to find this tribe, a tribe who intentionally try to remain hidden and below ground. This amazing Taramura tribe, they run unbelievably long distances. It's not unusual for three men in their 60s to be sitting in the tribe sipping coffee at 3 in the afternoon and say, Anyone want to go for a run? They say, Yeah? And they run 50 or 60 miles for fun in this tribe. Right? Not a marathon of 23 or whatever, the 24 point whatever miles, 26 point whatever miles. I told you I'm not a runner. Not a half marathon. 50, 60 miles recreationally for fun. Right? In this tribe, there are members who've run. 200 miles in one session over two days. So he wanted to find out what's their secret. 60, Nothing wrong with being 60, but 60-year-old men running 50 miles for fun on a whim? What's their secret? So the book is fascinating how through one connection leads to another, leads to another. He infiltrates the elderly of the tribe. He observes their running, and he uncovers their secret. You know what their secret is? I'm going to share it with you now. You know what their secret is? They run barefoot. They run barefoot. Isn't that unbelievable? In the review of the book, someone writes the following. One surprising advantage of the Taramura seem to have over the rest of the world is their lack of technology. They essentially run barefoot or in sandals, and they experience very little in the way of injury. Over the years, running shoes have become more and more cushioned with more and more high-tech gadgetry. Rather than improving our runs, these developments have worsened them. The latest gotta have running shoe in the store is causing the average runner to land in a continuous unnatural position, causing more harm over the long haul than good. Like our bodies, our foot is designed to run. And the shoe industry, by the way, is catching up with this. If you've been to to a store recently to buy running shoes, you'll notice sneakers are more simplified than ever. There's less cushioning and less insulation somehow the price doesn't come down but there's uh, if you look at running shoes they are more basic than ever even even shoes being promoted as a glove for the foot so what's the reason what's the answer because our, our foot is designed God amazingly designed our foot to be able to sustain the running the more we try to cushion it and protect it and insulate it right paradoxically the more injuries that we are suffering. When we artificially protect and insulate from what we're supposed to feel, the whole skeletal and muscle system goes out of whack and we sustain injury. When we are preventing ourselves from feeling, the foot is supposed to feel and react. And when you prevent it from its ability to feel, then you get injured. So I would like to humbly suggest that the same is true spiritually. What's true for the foot physically is true for the neshama. Too many people approach life and their religious experience and they're covered in insulation, they're covered in body armor, they're covered in protection, they don't allow themselves to feel, they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable, or to open up, or to be natural, or to be exposed. What will other people think? What will other people say? How do I look? What will it mean? How will I change? How will that impact me, my social standing? People have all kinds of impediments and obstacles. They wear all kinds of protective armor to make sure that they don't feel, that they're not feeling the sensations of spirituality. And maybe Hashem's Moshe, message to Moshe is that if you want contact with holiness, then you've got to be willing to feel. If you want to make a connection with Kedusha, you've got to take your shoes off. Take off the protection, take off the insulation, take off the armor, and feel return your sensitivity. You can't make contact with holiness and you can't nourish your soul if you're not in contact because there's something blocking you. So maybe the imagery of taking off your shoes, the same way your feet will feel the ground, take off the artificial armor that's blocking your soul from feeling what it needs to feel as well. The Rav once wrote, the primary motivation of prayer is derived from man's feeling of vulnerability. If you can't feel vulnerable, you can't feel. If you can't feel, you can't pray. And if you can't pray, you can't be spiritual. Maybe that is another one of the reasons. Alright, have a great day and a great week, everybody.